are continuing in our series in Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. We're going to read to verse 14, and what a wonderful, what a, a rich passage we have for us today. So Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, once you find that in your Bible or app or whatever you're looking at God's Word on, let's all stand together in honor of God and His Word. All right. And for those who are not able to stand, obviously we know we stand in our hearts. We stand at attention when we hear God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. So one of the best memories I have of my childhood, this probably is going to give you some insight into me. Um, my, dad, my dad is and was a planner. He loved to plan. And my dad, when it came time for family vacation, we had this, uh, this, this dinner table. And uh, it was a great dinner table because it was, it was also a, it was a bumper pool table underneath. And you could, and, it, and it was a poker table. You guys had one of those things. So we ate all our meals around this table. But my dad, when it came time... Um, to, to plan the family vacation, he would sit at his spot at the table. Everybody have a spot at the table? Okay, some of you guys do. Um, but he would sit at his spot at the table, and, and this is maybe where my love of maps comes from. Like, he would, he would, just all the maps, he would just lay them all out on the table. This is before the internet, right? Before cell phones, before iPads. He would just lay all the maps out on the table, and he would plan the itinerary, and he would plan. Now, we used to have cats, we used to have a cat, cats. I mean, we, we had a number of cats growing up, and maybe this is why my, my predisposition towards pets comes from as well. So my love for maps, maybe, as well as my, my stance towards various pets. So while my dad was planning, was planning the family vacation, the cat, for some reason or other, jumped up on the table. 
Now, I don't know what it's like in your family, but we've got our dog, Buddy, and when Buddy gets on the table, like, it's kind of like a melee. Like, everybody goes for Buddy to get him out of the way. Well, the cat was not supposed to be on the table, but cats are very, cats are notoriously difficult to train. Any amens out there? Like, cats do not respond to that. So my dad, my dad got a little upset at the, at the cat, which, again, my disposition towards maps, my disposition towards animals, okay, or at least towards pets. So what he does is he just grabs the nearest thing to him, which is, of course, a map. And he grabs this map and he throws it at the cat. But it, in this beautiful moment of God's sovereign design, this map caught the air perfectly so that it went from a nice folded up map when he threw it, it just went poof into a full map right in the middle. And, and the cat, I think it scared the snot out of the cat. The cat did not know what to do with it. But it was also this wonderful, mo- I mean, we just started busting up laughing because here in the middle of all this planning that this map just goes up. So my love for maps, my ambivalence towards pets, but also just my love for planning. I do like planning. My dad is a great planner. Um, every year we would get for my brother and I at Christmas time, once we started driving, every year we would get the updated Thomas guide. Anybody out there? Okay. Okay. If you're still using a Thomas guide, it's on your phone, everybody. Like you can do that. So, but yeah, I would have, I would have multiple Thomas guides in my car from different years. And the other thing my dad would give us is, um, he would every once in a while give us a fire extinguisher for Christmas. That he goes, well, just put it in your car because just in case. So my dad, my, my dad, my dad was a planner. He loved plans and he loved to be prepared. And my dad was and is today still a very much a man with a plan. Now I want to show you some, I want to show you some pictures that relate to not only this passage, but my dad who's a planner. So here's a picture. Um, in Turkey, there's a number of places where you can go. This, this, is, um, this is in the city of Aphrodisias. So we're in Ephesians. Aphrodisias is only about 50 miles away from Ephesus. We talked last week about the, the people who get this letter is more the region around Ephesus. So the seven churches region, this would be in that region. This is what we call, now this is not a theater. Don't call it a theater. This is actually what they call a bulletarian. You're like, a what a what a? A bulletarian. A bulletarian is, um, this is the place where the city council would meet. This is the place where the city council would meet. This would be the place, so a bulletarian. So in Greek, the word, if you, want, if you wished or willed or planned something, it was the, it was the verb bulamai or, or buluo, okay? And if you, if you went into this place, the bulletarian, you would buleo, and you would meet with the bulletes, the council, and you would come up at the end of the day, you would come up with a bule, okay? It's like the word of the day. Today, it's brought to you by the word bule, and the word bule is the word for a plan, and the thing is, this is the place, this, in Aphrodisias, this was the bulletarian. Go to the next picture. So this is what it looks like. This gives you a sense of the scale of the council, where you would sit if you were to devise a council, if you were to plan the city. Go to the next one. The next one. This is, this is the bulletarian in a city called Prieni, which is just south 
of Ephesus, about another 50 miles south of Ephesus. This is Priene. This is kind of a cool bulletarian because it's square. All the other bulletarians around, this is a square bulletarian. You're like, and again, geek mode, full geek mode. That's okay. Let's go to the next picture. This gives you another sense of kind of, of, of what it might look like to be in a council, a planning session. If you were, if you were planning in the ancient world, you would go to this place. Now, this next one, um, this is this next one. This is the city of Ephesus. It's, it's the largest bulletarian in the region because Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire and the largest city of Turkey back in the day of Asia Minor. This is a, a little bit of a video of gives you a sense of maybe the scale of what this might look like. So going from uh, the right to the left, this is in the upper city of Ephesus, but this would give you a sense of kind of the scale of what a bulletarian would look like. Those other ones were kind of small, maybe one level, but this was a place where the people of the city, the magistrates, those who were in charge, would get together, and if you wanted to plan something, a project, an aqueduct, a road, another building, a bathhouse, something like that, you would meet in the bulletarian, and you would buleo, and you would come up with a boule, a plan. And what we find in Ephesians, when Paul is writing this passage today, he wants to play on this idea of what the Ephesians know, what every city knew, what every person in the Greco-Roman world knew, is this place, this bulletarian, because in Ephesians 1.11, I'm just going to read this to you guys. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Now, listen to the planning language here. This is, this is a key verse, I think, that as we think about this and the plan of God, that this passage is about the plan of God. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined or determined beforehand according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the boule of his will. The boule of his will. Maybe in your translation it says the counsel of his will or the plan of his will. This is all things that this passage is about. God's grand plan. What he thinks is so important that he would begin the planning at the, at the foundations of the world. It would be mysterious, but it would unfold before you. And Paul wants to say, what, what, was, what did God do when he met in a the bulletarian of heaven. And they got together and they put their minds together. When God thought, when he thought intentionally, when he thought about what would be best, what would be a thoughtful thing to do, what would be a wise thing to do, this is the plan. And what we have today in our passage is this wonderfully rich and dense, it's very dense, um, beginning to the letter of the Ephesians and a, pa a passage that lets us into the unfolding plan, the boule of God, particularly as it relates to our salvation and bringing all things under the headship of Jesus, summing up all things in King Jesus. This passage is full of planning and execution and design and demonstrates a thoughtfulness and a wisdom. And what I want to do today is I want to walk through this passage, make some observations, and then reflect a little bit on the passage. So does that make sense to you guys? All right, are you guys in on this? So one of my favorite uh, shows when I was growing up was the A-Team. Anybody? B.A. Baracus, thank you very much. Mr. T, you got Face, you got Murdoch, but then you got Hannibal. And what does Hannibal always say? I love it when a plan comes together, all right? All right, so that's what we're doing today. Let's take a look. All right, 
Let's take a Now, this passage is really, so this passage is an affront to simple sentences. It is an affront to grammar. It is one, it is literally one long sentence. It's one long sentence. It's 14 verses of one sentence. And just so you know, so what it is, is you got one, you got a subject. Most, uh, most are like subject, verb, object, or maybe you have a complex sentence, subject, verb, object, uh, maybe adversative, and then you have another subject, verb, object, or something like that. Or, but this, this passage is like full of, and again, this is geek, it's like full of relative clauses and participial phrases and prepositional phrases, which are not complete sentences, boys and girls at home. Okay, if you're keeping score, you, all, you need to have a, a complete sentence. This is many, many sentences strung together that are not actually full sentences. So it has three parts, three parts, uh, from, one, from three to five, and then from 6 to 8, and then finally from 9 to 14. And what we're going to find in, this, in these places that Paul is going to do something with, um, he writes in Greek, but he thinks in Hebrew. And one of the things about each section, if you want to intensify anything in Hebrew, you say it twice. So this first section, he talks about God blessing, blessing with blessings. He intensifies. In the second section, he talks about God gracing with grace. And in the last section, he talks about God planning with a plan. And so the whole thing is about these intensive, this whole thing is about, I mean, obviously to the praise of his glorious grace, like this whole thing is this kind of lifting blessing that Paul begins his letter with, which is dense with theology, but begins to kind of give a roadmap of maybe where this letter is going. So let's start in verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So if this were Sesame Street, this verse would be brought to you by the word blessing, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And this idea that this is blessing, that God has blessed, and God is a blessing God, that's what he does. And he blesses, he doesn't just bless, he blesses with blessing. Which means that these are abundant blessings. That's why he says with every spiritual blessing. I suppose one other thing about this, okay, when you have a lot of what we call um, relative clauses, like that begin with whom, like who set in motion, or, or you know, like which he did this, which did, you know, those are relative, relative um, pronouns, but you always wonder, like, who's doing the work? Who is the who? And this verse actually gives us who is the who. God is the who. God is the subject of all the verbs in this passage. Now, Jesus, God will do things, and Jesus will do things, and we will do things, but the vast majority of what is being done in this passage God is the subject. God is doing the work. And we'll talk a little bit about that as, at, the, at the very end of the message here today. But God is the main actor in this entire passage, even in this entire book. It is God who blesses. It is God who chooses. It is God who sets apart. It is God who, re well, Jesus is the one who's redeeming, but God redeems through Jesus. God is doing the vast majority of the work in him. 
We actually do, there's, there's two things that we do. We'll talk about it at the end. Well, actually, there's three things we do. Um, but we'll, at the very end, we'll talk about what we do. But the vast majority is what God is doing. The first thing he does is he blesses with every spiritual blessing. Now, what are those blessings? Now, there's two things in this, two things. Look in 1-4. Here's the first, the first thing is this, in Ephesians 1-4. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the first thing, the first spiritual blessing, and these are, the idea of a spiritual blessing is these are blessings that are done in his spirit, okay? So that the spirit is the one who's kind of interceding for these blessings. So he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And this, this gives us, the, there's two things that are these blessings. He chose us, and then we're predestined for adoption. But we'll get to that in a second. But this begins, in verse 4, it begins the planning terminology. All of the planning. This is my dad with the maps, right? That God's not at his dinner table necessarily. He's, he's in his bulletarian in heaven or whatever, wherever he's at to do this planning. But it says, before the foundation of the world, he chose us. And another way to say this is that one way or another, God selected us. And he did this before anything was ever created. Now, um, I've been around long enough to know that that can raise a lot of people's hair. Like, you, the hair on the back of your neck can stand up. Like, you mean, am I pre, like, even though the word predestined feels like I feel confined. I feel like, do I have any choices in this matter? And, um, and I, I, we don't have time here. By the way, um, any of you, I, let's, let's back up. What I would like to do is actually spend a little bit of time in the In the Weeds podcast, off, off, off the stage talking about the issues of election, predestination, and how that works, and how that even works in our denomination, and, and how we talk about that. Um, if any of you listened last week to the author audience um, did anybody listen? I mean, God bless you if you did. Th that's exactly the number that I expected. Um, anyway, I, I talked through basically a very in-the-weeds um, technical idea of author and audience. It's on the website. Um, if, you, if you listen to the podcast or you are the church, uh, every, every, <laughs> every sermon comes out on the Taft Avenue podcast. And so if you subscribe to the podcast, you get the in-the-weeds as well. Um, but, but again, it takes a special person to listen to In the Weeds. I basically said in the first like 30 seconds, here's my position. If you want to turn the podcast off at this point, you can do that. Okay, that's what I'll do, okay? But then it goes on for another 27 minutes talking about the issues of that. So if that's kind of your cup of tea, blessings on you, okay? Um, but we don't have time to necessarily talk about the issues of election. And there are, there's a lot of issues about election. But one of the things here in this passage is very difficult to get around the idea that God... Before, foundation, before the foundation of the earth, of the world, had a plan. And that in his plan, he does that with all wisdom and insight. Like there is something about God's planning, God's selection. And part of that is about his selection, his choosing. That what he does, go, he goes on, he says that not only is it a blessing, a spiritual blessing to be chosen for the foundation of the world, and that choosing to be set apart holy and blameless, but also that you've been predestined for adoption, 1-5. He predestined us. Or maybe a better way to say it is, he decided beforehand 
to adopt us. He decided beforehand for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And here's one, here's the first thing that the Ephesians, the people reading this letter, the people in this region would have, would have found out because when you think about planning, you think about the bulletarian, you think about the city officials, you think about aqueducts and roads and buildings and projects. But for God, God thinks that the best energies that he's going to spend in his planning are not about these projects or these things. The best thing to spend time about thinking about is family. This is not about planning some, uh, some, some lifeless uh, cold brick-and-mortar project. This is about God building his family. And so what he does before the foundation of the world is he thinks, what would be the best thing that I could do? Man, the best thing I could do is adopt. (laughs) The best thing that I could do is adopt. And before the foundation of the world, God said, I'm adopting. Because for some reason, God seems to think that the best place for you and I to thrive, maybe for you and I to change, for you and I to be set apart, holy and blameless, even if we're not holy and blameless now, what's the best way to get us to holy and blameless? It's in a family. It's in a place where you know you're loved. It's in a place where you know that you're heard. It's in a place where you know that you have brothers and sisters who have your back. It's in a place where you know you have a father who loves you. It's in a place where you know that that Jesus is your elder brother, you're adopted, you share an inheritance, that he's like you, he can relate to you. God seems to think that this is the place. This is the place where thriving, where human thriving happens, is in a family. And so God, before the foundation of the world, when he's like, I need to pour out all these spiritual blessings, so I need to select and I need to adopt And this is what Paul says, that you have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've been chosen and you've been predestined for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. I mean, look, this is why, like, we're like two verses in and I just want to fall on my face in worship, right? We can't, but we can't, we got more to do. There's more here and this is, the beauty of this passage is just how dense it is with these beautiful theological ideas. So this planning is not about a city or a project. This planning is about family. And it's also done, it's also done not by donation or by patrons trying to get their way. It's not by po- po- politics. It's done by according to his good pleasure. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And in Greek, that says according to the good pleasure of his will. According to the good pleasure of his will. And that's the first section that we have been, he got, what has God done? He's blessed with blessing, which means he has poured out blessings that he has chosen us to be holy and blameless and he has adopted us to be sons and daughters. I mean, amen, amen. I mean, these, look, one of the things about Ephesians is even as we go through this, we gotta let these things sink into our hearts and into our souls because we live in a world where not every family looks awesome, right? 
Not every family necessarily do you receive the love you were expecting. Not every family do you feel like brothers and sisters, like many of, some of you are, not many, some are maybe estranged with your brothers or sisters or maybe estranged with your parents. And that's not our experience in this world, but God says, no, 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 no. We can't abandon the idea of family just because it goes wrong somewhere. I am the true family, and I am going to redeem what family looks like. And we live in a world right now where family might not look good, and there are people who are actively trying to destroy family. We will, in the church, family, particularly the family of God, our families are are examples of what the true family looks like. And that's what I, I I want to tell my own kids. Look, one day... One day, look, I, we're, we've done our best, but look, we've screwed you up, right? Can you say this to your kids? Like, we've done our best, but we've screwed you up, okay? What I want you to do, what I want you to do is not think of me as your father. I want you to think of God as your father, and I want you to go to him because he's perfect, and he will correct, he will redeem the mistakes that I have made. God is the true father of your true family. And your family might approximate the goodness of that family, but we always have to release our children to God to be reparented. If we want to have a shot at being holy and blameless, we release our kids to God who will reparent him, to Jesus who will model as an elder brother. All right. All right, I'm getting off script, but, you know, let's just keep going with this. Okay, Um, so the second section, beginning in verse 6, is about being graced with grace. Look at verse 6. It says, To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. It says here that Jesus, in Jesus he was the beloved, we have redemption. Redemption is the language from the commercial market. This is the language of the slave traders. This is the language of if you lost something or you pawned something off, and this would happen in the ancient world. So in, in, uh, if you might have something, but you came on hard times, and you had to sell something off. Maybe it was a piece of land. Maybe it was something, a family heirloom, something valuable, but you had to sell it off. That when times got better again and you actually, you had the means, you might go back and you might repurchase that thing that was once yours. It would be called redeeming something. It, we see it in, in Hebrew thought, this happened often, that some, sometimes families would be, would be separated and because of war or something like that or even just hard times, economically hard times, people would be sold off or sold into slavery, but what you would do is you would find that person and you would go out and you would pay the price to redeem them, to bring them back. That's the language that's being used here. And Paul says that we have redemption through his blood. That somehow somehow or another, in the mystery of what God is doing, that the blood of Jesus is the, the payment by which we are brought into adoption. That Jesus pays. So this idea of adoption goes right into this idea of redemption that somehow or another we, we were at one time God's children, but we've been, we've been somehow 
separated from him, taken away from him, or by our own will. Whether somebody else has taken us away or we by ourselves have gone out, but now it says that he sent his son Jesus by his blood to go out and find his children and purchase them back. And so we have redemption. We have redemption by his blood. This is another, this is the blessing of, of the blessings, the spirit, every spiritual blessing. We've been chosen We've been predestined to adoption, and now he said he's gone out and he's redeemed us. He's found us. And Paul wants to clarify that this means redemption, but this also means forgiveness of sins. That by his blood, he's purchased this price, but he's also, again, the goal is that we've been set apart to be holy and blameless. And so what he does is this blood cleanses of us of our sins. It pays the price somehow. I don't, this is awesome blood, and, and there's a mystery about how this all works, but it's paid the price. It's also cleansed us. Forgiveness of our sins. And Paul helps to make sure his readers understand that these blessings, redemption, and the forgiveness of sins are according to, again, one of, our, one of these significant theological terms that we're going to unpack in Ephesians, that the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the choosing, the predestining, is all because of another, this rich theological word, grace. We're going to have some time on a Sunday just to unpack that word in its fullness, but grace is the idea of goodwill or favor, and it's a particular kind. Grace has this idea of its goodwill or favor that's not obligatory. In other words, God is not obliged to give this favor, and for the Ephesians, this is important. Again, the Ephesians, he's writing this to these people in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, where the, all these relationships are governed by this reciprocity. So if, if, I, have a, if, there's a, if I have a patron, I'm, it's like patron-client, high up, low down. Let's say I'm a merchant or something like that, and I want to ingratiate myself to someone of a higher level. So I would do something for them. I would do some job for them, and I'd say, hey, don't worry about it. That's on the house. And then they would say, they would be like, oh, well, that's obligating me to show you favor, grace. And so there would be this reciprocity, and, and you would have this, all, every relationship was kind of like that, and that patron had somebody kind of over them that they were trying to ingratiate themselves to so that they could get favor. And it would all go all the way down from the emperor down, and you would have this, these power dynamics of favor and, and obligation, favor and obligation. And what God is saying here, what Paul is saying about what God, what God is doing, that God is choosing, that God is adopting that God is redeeming not according to some obligation. He does it freely of his own good pleasure. That if there's a place where grace begins, like where does it begin in a patron-client relationship? Did you do something nice for me or did I do something nice for you? Like how did, who did was the first to act? Paul makes it clear, God is the first to act. God is the first to show favor, and there is a richness of this grace. As a matter of fact, in verse 6, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has graced us in the beloved. He has graced us with grace. Your translation, if you have the ESV, it says blessed. I don't know why they translate it as blessed, but the word there is graced. You might have, he's given it to us, but he's, his glorious grace has been graced on us in the beloved. 
And then it says this, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his favor. Which, what did he do? Pours it out. He lavishes it. He pours it out. The word there is he abounds it. It just comes out and out and out and out and out. And it has to because we stink. Because if this, look, if this was about reciprocal relationships, and it was about what I could give to God that he would give me favor, like I'm doomed. And God says, that's a horrible way to live. We're not going to live as patrons and clients. We're going to live, I'm your father, you're my son or my daughter. You're not going to be my client. That's not the way this is going to work. That's a horrible way to do this. And he says that he does it, look, how does he do it? He does it with all wisdom and insight. Look, I think if I were running the show, maybe, I'd be like, hey, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. Like, that sounds like a smart way to do things, right? I, you know, sometimes, can I, can I get a nod? Does that sound like a smart way to do it? Like, maybe we do that with our kids. Like, if you clean your room, then you get your allowance. Like, that sounds like a good, that sounds like a good plan, right? That if I have my client, like, I'll be good at this. Like, there, there is this kind of, like, we live in a world of reciprocity, right? We live in a world where if you do something nice for me, then I'll do something nice for you. Like, we live in that world. But God, God says, look, in my family, that's not how we're going to do it. And you might think, well, God, that's, that's kind of dumb. Like, I don't think, I, and, and here's the thing, here's the thing. If you know, if you've walked with Jesus long enough, you start to realize that Jesus does things that you don't think are smart. Okay? And there's a certain point where you've got, you've got to get used to it and you've got to get on board with it. Let me say this again. If you walk with Jesus long enough, he's going to do things that you think are dumb. That you think just don't make any sense. Like letting someone smack you twice on the cheeks. Like walking an extra mile because somebody's compelling you to do so. You read the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, all those things are dumb. How is that going to work? You're like, pastor said Jesus was dumb. Don't, look, strike it from the recording. Okay. But have you experienced this before where you're like, it doesn't make any sense. And here's the thing. God seems to know. God knows what's best. And there's often times where our sensibilities do not match up with his sensibilities. Like about predestination or election or even adoption or even the idea that the way he's going to run his family is by this unmerited favor that he's just going to pour out. Maybe the reason why we, we, we don't like that is like, I don't feel like I've got an unlimited supply of unmerited favor to go around. <laughs> and maybe, maybe you don't either. And that's true because we're finite, right? And maybe that's why we don't think about that. But we've got to think about God. We've got to understand that God, God is God. And he has, he has a supply of grace, of favor, of love, a storehouse that we, ne- that we aren't even beginning to tap. And so there's going to be things that are said in here that we think, man, I would not do it that way. And the reason you wouldn't do it that way is because you're not God. 
And there's a point where you have to, real, you have to get on board with the idea, if I'm going to follow Jesus, Jesus is going to have me doing things at the end of the day that I didn't think were good ideas at the beginning of the day. Because that's what, that's what growing into Christ's likeness looks like. And we get on board with that, and we get on board with this idea that God says, hey, you're my son, you're my daughter. You're like, oh, I'm, I don't deserve to be your son or daughter. And he's like, look, I said, you are my son, you are my daughter. I have adopted you, I've gone to great lengths to find you, to redeem you, to bring you into my family, and to lavish love on you. You got a problem with that? I mean, that's not what he said. That's like, but you get the idea, like, he, ha, he is constantly correcting us. Like, there's, there's going to be a challenge in every passage in Ephesians, and that challenge has to do with how we see ourselves and our identity. And what God wants to say is, look, your identity is in Christ. And when I look at you, what I've chosen to do is I've brought you into Christ. He's kind of like this umbrella. And like when, when I look at you, what I see is him. And trust me, this is the only way you're going to stay in until you grow into Christ-likeness. And so he chooses to see his son. He chooses to lavish his grace because he thinks that's the way that real transformation happens. I would say this. I think that transformation happens when you come to the point of pain, a, a, some kind of crisis in your life that you know you can't handle, and where you give yourself over to Jesus to take care of that. It's, it's what we call faith, which is trust and um, entrusting yourself to Jesus. And then, and then what God says is, well, if we're going to transform you, I think the best environment to do that is, a, is an environment of, of unmerited grace, of just where it lavishes out on you, where you get forgiven, where you get redeemed, where we love you, where you're loved. That transformation happens, it begins at a point of pain, but transformation happens in an environment where you are deeply, deeply loved. All right. We're only halfway through. I mean, I got I to gotta pick up the pace here. So, in, so we have redemption in Jesus so, and, and grace, and God is different. He graces with grace, he lavishes grace, and he does so with all wisdom and insight. Even if we don't think it's smart, he does it with all wisdom and insight. All right, that, the last section is about planning, and we read, this, we read one, of these sec- one of these verses, but in the final sections, beginning in verse 9, Paul notes that this great plan of God, this unfolding of the plan is being made known to us. That look at verse, at, at verse 9. It says he's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. This, this mystery of his will that God has a will. All this planning talk again. The mystery of his will that in the past it might not have looked this way but it's unfolding like the mystery is being made known. And that he has a plan, in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven, sorry, all things in him, in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. That God has a a planned arrangement, this plan, to unite, to sum everything up under King Jesus. And then he returns to the family talk in verse 11 that we read at the beginning, which is this compilation of planning language and family language. Listen to this. In him we have obtained an inheritance. The only people who get inheritance are sons and daughters. 
And inheritance is a wonderful concept to note that there's identity in inheritance. When you're an heir, when someone gives you an inheritance, you are expected to step into their shoes, to be like them, to carry on their legacy, to carry on their sensibilities. Heirs. We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the boule of his will. We're back to boule. So as we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The plan, and the plan is about family. It's about adoption and inheritance. You know, in... um, in this passage, we talk about all the verbs and God's the main subject of the verb. Here are all the things that God does in this passage. He chooses, he predestines, he graces, he abounds grace, he makes known to us, he purposes in his good pleasure, he makes an arrangement to sum all things up in King Jesus. He made us heirs. He decided beforehand this is according to his purpose and according to the plan of his will. God does all of those things. Jesus, Jesus is the conduit. Everything is in him. He redeems. Up to this point, God is doing all these things in Jesus. But in these last two verses, he talks about what we do. Okay, and I want, I want to finish us up with this. 113. In him, speaking of Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. There's two things, actually three things, one from the last verse. Um, Two things that we do. Did you catch it in the verse? We hear and we believe. We hear the good news, we listen to the good news, and then we trust. We listen and we trust. I mean, look, I, I feel like I want to do more. <laughs> and there is, there is a sense in which, again, but this is where God is saying, look, I get it, and you will do more because you have been, you've been saved by grace, so that for the works that I have prepared for you, you will do more. Like, there will, be, there will be works. You are set apart to be holy and blameless. Like, there will be that is to come. But the very first thing we want to do is we want to establish identity, and God is going to do all these things, and this is the good news, and what I want you to do is I want you to listen to it, and I want you to trust. I want you to hear it, and I want you to believe. What is belief? Believe, believing is, is trusting Jesus for your salvation and entrusting yourself to him. Let me say that again. Sometimes the, the, the theology of all, it can be, these are big words, and what is faith? Look, faith is trusting Jesus and entrusting yourself to him. Okay, trusting and entrusting yourself to him. That's what faith is. And that's what Paul says, you hear, you hear and you believe. And then what happens? What happens then 
is God does something. He seals you. Sealing, this, the, verb, the verb is if you had a ring, if you had a, a signet ring and you were, you were uh, striking a deal with somebody because you couldn't carry around all this stuff. You couldn't carry, like if I was purchasing a piece of land and it costs a lot of money, I couldn't carry all the, all the gold or every, like, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna, I'm going to pay for this with like 10 goats and a camel and a bag of gold. Like, and I can't show up to look at the land. Can you imagine showing up to a real estate thing and you're like, I got, a, I got 10 goats and I got a camel and I got a bag of, of gold. You can't do that. So what you do is you, you strike this deal, and then you have a ring, and on the ring you have a seal on it, and it's the family seal. It's the family signet. And so what you do is you, you, you say, okay, I'm going to purchase that, and in order to, to show that I'm, I'm for real, we drip some wax on it, we take my ring, and we seal it. And what God says is this, when you hear and you believe, what's going to happen is God is going to take his signet ring, which is his Holy Spirit, and he's going to impress that right onto you, into you. You're going to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, who what he calls is an arabon, is a, is, uh, what does he say in here? A guarantee of our inheritance. Some translations might say a down payment. What is an arabon? If you go to, if you go to Greece today, an arabon, and you ask a young lady to show, her your, our, show you her arabon, she'll hold out her engagement ring. An arabon in, in modern Greek is an engagement ring, which is this idea, what is an engagement ring? It's, it's, a, it's a promise of marriage. It's a promise that we are going to seal the deal, right? That's what the engagement ring is for. And so, but what he, what in the ancient world, what an arabone is, what a, what a guarantee is, is that again, I might bring my signet ring and I might bring a small bag of gold coins that I will pay. This is the arabone. Now, here's the deal in the ancient world. If I don't come back and I don't bring all the sheep and goats and camels that I said I was gonna, I was gonna buy that with, and I, I renege on the deal, you keep the arabone. You keep the guarantee. You keep the deposit. Another way to say this is that, that God, that uh, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the non-refundable down deposit, down deposit, down payment. What am I saying? Let's try this again because it's, it should sound good. Okay. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the non-refundable down payment of our inheritance. God has said, look, it is so sure that I'm going to, re- I'm go- you are mine. And just to show you that, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to seal you with my Holy Spirit. Because if, you're, if you've got any chance of change, of growing into Christ-likeness, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to be reminded every day that you are deeply loved by me. And what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 is that the Spirit cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, reminding us of who we are. I can't wait to get into Ephesians. Like, this is just the first few ch- verses. Paul's going to lay this out because this is where we thrive in our humanity when we find ourselves in the family of God, deeply loved. And have you, have you heard just the Trinitarianness? God is choosing, Christ is redeeming, the Holy Spirit is sealing. God says, 
I love you so much, I'm investing two-thirds of the Trinity into you. Like, that's bad theology. You can't really say that. Like, it doesn't break down that way. But God says, I'm just going to invest in you everything I've got, everything valuable that I have. The most valuable thing is my son. I'm going to send him for you. This empowering presence, my empowering presence, I'm going to seal you with that. Because that's what you need. That's what you need. And it's not a project. You're not my project. You're my child. This isn't about brick and mortar, cold projects. This is about the warmth of a family. I guess we'll end with this. In the ancient world, there were lots of plans for lots of people. And in the bulletarian, it's fun to say bulletarian, bulletarian. You might have the, the plans of Rome. Rome had plans. Rome had a boule. The plans of cities, magistrates, and authorities, they had plans. The gods and spiritual forces of the day, they had plans. Wealthy people who surrounded, who controlled the cities, they had plans. If you were a slave, a woman, or a child, you were subject to the plans of the head of your household in the ancient world. And oftentimes, so I suppose the vast majority of people in the ancient world did not make their own boule. They were subject to the plans of others. And those plans were often harsh and cruel, unforgiving and stern. And what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, you are not simply the product of an uncaring universe or blind fate. And you are not simply subject to to the plans of Rome or your city planners or the wealthy people of your city. You have been accounted for in a great plan that has been thoughtfully purposed according to God's good pleasure from the, before the foundations of the world. God has seen you. God has known you. God has loved you. God intimately knows you. And you're cared for in grounded and secure ways by a powerful God and Father of our King, Jesus. And I suppose, look, as we, as we bring this home to where we are today, um, does someone have a plan for you? Have you thought about this? Because I, I, I want to pull back the curtain for a second. Every, someone, there are many people and many things in this world that have a plan for you. Like, I, um, one of my favorite things is that um, email is everyone else's plan for your day. Okay? It's not your plan. It's everybody else's plan. You think of, just think about your email box. Just think about what you get emails from or who you get emails from. They got plans for you, right? Friends. Sometimes they're good plans. Sometimes they're advertisers. News. Everybody's got a plan for you. You watch the commercials today when you watch the NBA All-Star Game, if you're going to watch that. They've got a plan for you. They got a plan for you. They got a plan for your money. Governments might have a plan for you. They think you should do this or that or the other thing. We live in a, I mean, look right now, like we, in the United States of America, this idea of freedom, like what about, like maybe I should have a plan for myself. I need to have a plan for myself. We call that freedom, right? Who has a plan for you? I guess the question is this. What plan do you want to go with? 
Whose plan do you want to go with? And you might balk, you might balk at like, I don't advertise, I don't want to go with them or government, I don't want to go with them, but you might, I want to make my own plan. I'm like, do you really? Like, think it through. Think it through. Because God has thought about this from the foundation of the world. And what I want to urge us to do, what I want to urge us to do as a church and even as individuals is just to simply, to affirm, look, God, we might not understand it, We might not know entirely what to do with it, but we want to trust that you're good and we want to go with your plan. And that plan involves hearing with faith, being sealed by the Holy Spirit, having been redeemed by Jesus, and trusting that God, our Heavenly Father, knows us, loves us, and has a plan, even if we don't recognize exactly what it is at all times. Why don't we pray? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Sometimes, Father, we just, we just want to affirm right now that there are lots of plans. There's lots of boule out there. There's lots of people that have a lot of ideas about what we should be doing with our time, with our energy, with our lives. And maybe our first thing, maybe our first thing is not just renouncing our own plans for ourselves, but just our plans for other people. Like we probably have plans for other people. And maybe we just need to start by saying, okay, my plan for this person is nowhere near what God's plan is for them. I don't want to presume that I know what God's plan is for this person. I also, maybe another thing to do this morning is simply to say, I got a plan for myself, but God, Father, I don't want to presume that my plan matches up with your plan. So I want to submit. I want to surrender myself to you. And that's a good thing to do every day, but maybe you haven't done that for a really long time and today is a significant, you're coming to a point where you're like, I gotta make a change. I've gotta surrender myself to God's plan. And if you need, if you need prayer because that feels like a heavy thing, then, then stick around afterwards. Let's pray together. But Father, just in, the, in this moment, in this time, we just want to affirm You are our God. We are your people. You have loved us. You have chosen us before the foundations of the world. You had us in mind. And like the Apostle Paul at the end of this, we just want to say, to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your glory, This plan is obviously great for us, but it's not for us to the praise of your glory, your fame, your renown. Would you be lifted high? And Father, we want to just submit, even in the midst of this, we can still submit our request to you. And even just right now, 
Um, if you've got something on your heart, just submit it to your Heavenly Father. Just give it to Him. Just say it. Just communicate to Him. He's your Father. He loves you. He listens to you. He wants to act on your behalf. Father, all the unspoken requests that are here today, Father, we know you can hear them and you can do according to your will. Father, we love you and we give this morning to you, we give our day to you, we give our lives to you. And we want to submit to your plan and your will. And we pray in Jesus' name.